Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Question 232, in light of the scriptures referenced there, is a great place to restart our conversation on baptism. The question is, what is the benefit, power, or efficacy of baptism? The answer is the words of institution of baptism. That would be Matthew 28. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And many other passages of Scripture show this. And here, just to go really quickly, Mark 16, 16, our Lord says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. So the connection between faith and baptism. We'll get to talk more about that today in another question. But the salvific connection. So when we're talking about the benefit, power, and efficacy of baptism, and Jesus says, whoever believes and is baptized will be Saved, there's salvific benefit connected to baptism. Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. We see that baptism is connected with the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, also the gift of the Holy Spirit, the receipt of the Holy Spirit in baptism. So again, these we're just collecting the benefits that the scriptures talk to us about in regard to baptism, we're seeing salvation, we're seeing forgiveness of sins, we're seeing the Holy Spirit. And we're only two scriptures in. Ephesians 5, 25 through 26 talks about Christ as the bridegroom, washing and cleansing, sanctifying his church. And so that language of washing, um, that he might present her without spot or wrinkle or ble- any blemish whatsoever. So it's that loving, nurturing of, of Christ who binds himself once and for all uh, to his church. So a washing that cleanses and purifies. That's Ephesians 5. Uh, Titus 3, 5, and 7, we spent a lot of time on last week. We looked at the text itself. And that, of course, is the um, baptismal uh, renewal and regeneration So already there, it's the language of new birth and a new creation um, wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. So sanctification in the narrow sense, where we talk about progress, maturation in the spiritual life, all flows forth from the baptismal reality. In the first place, he creates a new man through baptism. And then in the second place, through that baptismal grace, he um, works toward the maturation, the finishing of the project of conforming us into the image of Jesus. John 3, 5, you remember where Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and um, he connects baptism with being born again. That's frequently translated, probably a little better, born from above. It doesn't ultimately matter, but just narrowly 
exegetically born from above is probably preferred. And as he restates in parallel phrase, to be born from above is to be born of water and the spirit. He says definitively, that which is of the flesh is flesh, that which is of the spirit is spirit. Such a helpful teaching on baptism because if you are born of fleshly parents, you are flesh. But if you are born of this new birth from above, born of water and spirit, then you are now spirit and born of God. And so that which is flesh is flesh, it's going to perish, but that which is born of God is of God, and it will not perish. It is eternal. So hard to overstate the blessings and benefits that Jesus teaches in John chapter 3. And then we looked last week, again, by just turning to the passage itself, 1 Peter 3.21, and that's the famous passage, Baptism Now Saves You, where Peter draws a parallel that though the flood waters came and destroyed the world, those same waters were salvific for Noah and seven others. And in the same way, baptism, the flood waters of Christ's grace, now save you. So Christ being our Noah and the seven others typifying the sevenfold completion of the church. So baptism now saves you. So as you can see, just from these, and and others could have been brought to bear as well, uh, baptism does wonderful, salvific uh, things, and um, things that, uh, by which we receive an entirely new person and being, and an entirely new life in God. So continuing with Chemnitz then, Hence, Luther rightly says in his catechism, and this is, of course, the small catechism, you'll recognize it, baptism works forgiveness of sins, delivers from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words of divine promise declare. Now, let me ask you a question on the side. If baptism does all of these wonderful things, forgives your sins, washes away every spot, wrinkle, and blemish, saves you, is a new birth, you're renewed and made new. Is, does this sound like the work of man? No. <laughs> no. So there is no one single verse that we can quote that says, uh, baptism is God's work. But when you look at all the baptismal passages and the work being done within them, you immediately recognize that it is the divine work of God. And when you go look specifically at the passages, you find that God is very frequently the subject doing the doing. Titus 3 was a great example. 1 Peter 3 was a great example. We looked at those in depth last week. Okay, anything else you want to talk about in regard to the benefit, power, and efficacy of baptism? Yeah, I guess my question has to do uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, he says uh, in 231, we are born again of water and the Spirit. And you mentioned before that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit in baptism. And so I'm thinking just that the general usage of spirit and soul in, in the culture today, and, you know, for however many years. Um, does a distinction need to be made? Is there... One spirit, the Holy Spirit, and all other talk of spirit is, is, is false gods? Or Do you know what I mean? Mm. When we talk about receiving the Holy Spirit, is it possible to have spirit outside of the Holy Spirit? Does that, am I making sense? Yeah, the, I'm just trying to think about how best to present it without spending a lot of time. 
Um, so, yes, the, the Holy Spirit, the, when we talk about the capital S Spirit, that's uniquely one of the three persons of the Trinity. It has its own ontology or being, even though that's an improper way of speaking. It still is helpful um, to, to sort of grasp that that's in its own category. Uh, second category we might think of is angels, as conscious, sentient beings. They are spirits. That's their ontology. We'd put them in a separate class than the Holy Spirit. Satan, by being one of those spirits, because angel is an office. Angel means messenger. But what is an angel? The The scriptures are very clear that an angel is a spirit. You can go to the first chapter of Hebrews if you want a refresher on all of this. So when Satan falls away from God and rebels against God, he becomes an unholy spirit. (laughs) So the great battle then is between the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, and the unholy spirit, this fallen angel. And that's why, um, for example, in Luther's baptismal liturgy, we've done it a, a handful of times here at Faith, in Luther's baptismal liturgy, there's actually an exorcism where uh, the, the pastor will say something to the effect of, I adjure you, O unclean spirit, depart and make way for the Holy Spirit. Because it, we rec- we're recognizing there the reality of life is binary. You're either controlled by the unholy spirit or the Holy Spirit. There's no neutrality. There's nothing in between. It's one or the other. Then when we talk about man, we uh, see in the scriptures that man is also spirit, but not spirit alone. Spirit and body. Okay? And this is the, the dominant way in which the scriptures speak of man as uh, being a duality of spirit and flesh, or um, soul and material. And so soul is, in that sense, sometimes used synonymously with spirit. Now, it's, co- it's a little complicated, but God seems to think we can handle it because it's in the Bible. There is a minor way in which humanity is spoken of in the scriptures as being body, soul, and spirit. Okay. So some distinction can be, but this would be true for believers or unbelievers. Okay. It's not as though, and the Bible kind of defies neat, simple categorizations that we wish it went for, where you could say like an unbeliever was body and soul, and a believer is body, soul, and spirit, but it's just those neat little tidy categories just aren't tenable when you look at the scriptures. So it seems to be the constitution of man from the threefold aspect that the scriptures teach is that that's our ontology, body, soul, and spirit. But again, the dominant way of of speaking biblically is just spirit and body or soul and body. Um, One of the things that I would also urge is one of our Neoplatonic assumptions, this is baked into American way of thinking, is that spirit is immediately different from material. And I would, ch- I would challenge that, that while that is sometimes true and sometimes a helpful distinction, uh, it's not always. And the Bible is what tells us manifestly that it's not always a helpful distinction. 
because God, who is spirit, nonetheless takes form in theophanies. Angels who are spirit nonetheless take form and sometimes what is indistinguishable from any other human form. So that they're described simply as being men. So this really, uh, this philosophical assumption that's baked into late Western culture that spiritual is one thing and material is another thing isn't universally true or universally helpful. That's just, that's a little extra. It's a little extra ice cream with your pie. (laughs) No, you didn't ask for that. But it is worth considering when we're considering the definition of spirit and uh, material and that kind of thing. Does that help answer your question about spirit as a word? I guess I would ask, does then, when Paul talks about, does he say testing the spirits? Then, mm-hmm. so like somebody, the most common thing would be for somebody to say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Yeah. So, right. okay, then, then you have to go through the process of testing what that spirit is. Sure, yeah. Regardless of that distinction, you want to test the spirits, and that has to do with the spirits of men, chiefly. Um, I'm, not, I'm not opposed at all to the idea that there's uh, other spirits behind men, that evil angels aid evil men and good angels aid good men. So I'm not opposed at all to Paul speaking more broadly than mere human, human beings in that case. No, no problem there. And, uh, there he goes. We have a kamikaze bird. For those of you online wondering, we have a visitation. Yeah, we've got a. We're preaching the gospel to all creation, as the end of Mark says. Yeah. Okay. I lost my train of thought entirely. Sorry about that. Please. Yeah. Um, One of the thoughts I had as I was listening to you speak, because I agree that there's a spirit. I mean, sometimes you look at a piece of artwork and you can see the spirit in there. Mm. You know, you get a. And and so then I sat there and my brain said, "Well, how is it that we interpret that?" And we have this intuition inside us, which often we can't put a material thing to it, but we're looking at material and saying, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't look right. This, you know, um, I know we might be talking, you know, I'm talking more of a mechanical part of spirit maybe, so it may not be exact same spirit, but, mm-hmm. but I, it just is interesting that we do use that. You know, and people sure. are, are, are often belittled because it, they intuitively say something and mm-hmm. they can't give. The world wants material. Mm-hmm. They want the material so they right. can believe what you, you know, see. Mm-hmm. You know, and if, you're, if they can't see what you see, maybe that's what gets us into so much trouble with lots of people in this world. Because everybody says, well, why can't you see that? Mm-hmm. You know, and then we have this division, too. Yeah, interesting ideas. Interesting ideas and... Yeah, the whole, the whole concept there is uh, challenging to us uh, because the Bible, again, doesn't, the revelation from God doesn't fit into neat, tidy categories that we'd, we kind of wish it did so we could learn and memorize those and it would all be easy. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the, bi- the biblical presentation is uh, much less systematic and uh, leaves room for lots of, yeah, lots of uh, <laughs> meditation and speculation and consideration. Okay, did I see another? uh, Are we good? We're good. All right, so then on to question 233. 
But these benefits certainly depend on the merit of the obedience and passion of Christ. So, what is Chemnitz saying? He's saying that baptism isn't a washing away of sins. It isn't a salvation. It isn't a new birth apart from Christ. Okay, that's the key. Now look at the question that goes the opposite direction. Are men then to be diverted from Christ and brought to baptism instead of to him? You can see the false dichotomy, can't you? You can see the, the false. This is, I, as I've brought up before, and I'll bring it up again without belaboring it, God willing. This is the problem in American evangelicalism, is you're always pitting Christ against baptism. Well, baptism can't save because Christ saves. Christ alone saves, baptism can't save. What's the problem with that? The Bible says baptism saves. (laughs) So here's a great example of seeing a theological system that precludes the scriptures. I know it's not a complicated system, but it's a system nonetheless. Christ alone saves. Nothing else definitionally can save, including baptism. That's That's a system, a rational system of man. And the problem is, the biblical data doesn't fit that system. When the biblical data doesn't fit, should you go with the system or with the Bible? The Bible. (laughs) And that's thoroughgoing. I mean, it's always easier to look at the log in your neighbor's eye or the speck in your neighbor's eye. Uh, But what we can take from that and learn from that is that when we run across things in the scriptures that don't seem to fit whatever, quote-unquote, the Lutheran system is, or whatever, quote-unquote, our pastors and theologians have taught us is true, with which should we go? Scriptures. Always the Scriptures. Let the Scriptures do their work. Yes, I see a hand in the back. And uh, our friend's out making making a scene again. But, yeah, please. Perhaps is it a matter of articulation um, that baptism um, only saves because of Christ? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, exactly. it's not only Christ can save. Baptism only works because of Christ's death. Exactly right. Exactly right. And we'll see then why baptism and the Lord's Supper and, of course, the Word itself and the Word being the heart of baptism and the heart of the Lord's Supper, why it is that we call these the means of grace because they're the delivery system of what Christ has done for us on the cross. They're the way in which they come to us personally and individually. So let's get the answer then. We see the problem that there's a false dichotomy in the question, are men to be diverted from Christ and brought to baptism instead of him? Let's get the answer over on the top of page 114. If Christ is separated from baptism or baptism from Christ, as the sacramentarians do, then indeed the washing of water can of itself work or confer none of these things. But it is and remains only a simple sign. Okay, a sacramentarian is someone who basically views the sacraments as symbols and signs, nothing more. 
So what are the benefits and efficacy of baptism? They would say, nothing really. And they would then likewise strip it of being God's work and make it an act of man and an act of man's obedience and then flesh it out with a bunch of theology that you just can't find any text in scripture in regard to. Like, it's your act of obedience. It's your public pledge of faithfulness, or it's your public pledge that you're really taking it seriously, or it's your public pledge that you're joining such and such a congregation, which, if it's making you get baptized again, is, objectively speaking, closer to a cult than a church. That's the way in which it goes in many uh, evangelical circles today, and that's um, what is being called here sacramentarian The sacramentarians view it this way. Okay, so if you separate baptism from Christ or Christ from baptism, then right, you've got nothing. You've got just water and just a symbol. We can concede that. Chemnitz continues, but since Christ is in and with the act of baptism, so that we are baptized into his death and resurrection. Remember that from Romans 6? I think we looked at that text as well. In fact, in baptism, we put on Christ, Galatians 3.27, and he himself cleanses us by this washing, Ephesians 5. Likewise, since God the Father imparts, presents, and seals to believers the merit of Christ through his Holy Spirit in baptism and through baptism, Titus 3, Therefore, neither water nor the act of the minister performs and works the things that are predicated of baptism. But God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself, through baptism, as through the ordinary means, ordained and instituted by God himself for this purpose. Okay, if I could just simplify that. A pastor can take water do whatever blessings he wants to do over the water, splash it on you a hundred thousand times, but neither he nor the water can affect baptism. Neither he nor the water in and of themselves can unite you with Christ such that you are buried with him and raised with him. That act has to be an act of God. And then God does this through the means of the pastor and the water. Okay, that's what's in view. So God is doing this himself, uh, uniting us with Christ, Romans 6, so we cannot view baptism as opposed to Christ. So the, the false dichotomy is exposed by Romans 6, that, well, if I'm saved by Christ alone, I can't be saved by baptism. Romans 6 shows that your baptism is a baptism into Christ so that you are buried with him and raised with him. And that ends the false dichotomy and also ends the claim then that baptism does nothing. How can it be said to do nothing if it unites you with Christ, burying you with him and raising you with him? Okay, we've seen baptism pit against Christ. That's an error. And uh, in a question or two, we're going to see baptism pit against faith. That's the other error. Those are the two great low chiefer errors in regard to one's doctrine of baptism. Yes, I see a hand. Yeah. 
Do you want the microphone or is it? It doesn't matter. Um, I hate this because I know what I'm supposed to believe. And yet this troubling thing just keeps coming forward based on what you were just saying. If an emergency baptism has to happen and someone who is not holding an office of the key is only available to do that, Hmm. and we are saying that, we're saying now, you just stated, that we know it is God who is doing the work, Mm -hmm. not the instruments. Mm And I think I've heard it even in our church that if you don't hold the office of keys, the baptism, you know, is should not be done. Mm, mm. Well, if you yeah, if you heard that in our church, it sounds like it was an error, uh, and I I've personally never held that. So yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I'm not not accusatory. So I can help uh, I can help clarify a few things. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So um, good point. In the first place, and the way I've been speaking, and the way the text speaks, is uh, the general order of operations is that baptism be done through the pastors of the church. It's just the normal way and normative way in which God has put it in place. Um, The same is true for uh, things like public absolution (laughs) and even the hearing of uh, private uh, confession absolution. Those are things given... um, generally speaking, by God to the church, and the church executes these things through the office of the ministry. No problem there. All right, then in terms of clarification, so I don't like the phrase emergency baptism because it brings about all kinds of wrong ideas into our heads. Like, is, are we saying that God, okay, the, the, you know, someone was, was going to catechesis they were on they were preparing to be baptized they're on their way to the church there's a car accident now they're laying on the side of the road dying and god his angels up in heaven are wringing their hands and biting their nails going it's an emergency and this person isn't baptized i don't think so i don't think so I don't think there's any such thing as emergency baptism in that sense because god isn't waiting in heaven with a clipboard Going, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Belief? Oh, an unfortunate lack of baptism. Sorry, better luck next eternity. I don't, so this emergency baptism conjures all kinds of wrong thoughts in our hearts about who God is and how this works. How about rather baptism in an emergency? Okay, baptism in an emergency can and should be performed by any Christian. And, and just to tweet yours, because mm-hmm. I had this happen when I worked at, I think, uh, Long Beach Memorial a long time ago. Um, so we had a spontaneous abortion on our floor. Mm. And we had the Catholic charge nurse. So I witnessed and we took that little piece of tissue and flesh and whatnot. Mm. That was by Immaculate Conception, by the way, but anyway. Mm. Um, and we baptized that. Mm. Well, I didn't. I observed the Catholic nurse who did that. Mm. What, I mean, here we have so many other things. I, I mean, I think I still would have erred that way because we don't know when life... Life is when God puts two cells together. 
Yeah, such a such a tragic and such a uh, emotionally laden and poignant episode and an event that occurred. I don't want to uh, think it'd be in poor taste to render any judgments um, from afar. So I I yeah, want to avoid that. Fast and furious. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting mm-hmm. there trying to do the best, and I was a very young girl, so I was just standing on the sideline observing. But the Catholic nurse immediately took and showed. You know, had we. There were a couple of us sitting around, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it still is in the Lutheran service book. Um, I bet it is. In the back cover, there is a rite of baptism uh, for use in emergencies. And so, again, if you're, there, that, there's a distinction there that is important and, and tenable. That is that... Uh, there's no such thing as emergency baptism. It's not like God's up there holding his breath. Okay? But in an emergency, it becomes the role of any Christian to baptize if there's opportunity to baptize. Was I right? Thank goodness. Okay. <clears throat> and, um, yes, it's always wonderful when the synodical documents agree with you. So it's not emergency baptism, it's holy baptism in cases of emergency. Yeah. In urgent situations, in the absence of the pastor, any Christian may administer holy baptism. And by the way, there's even a right for the public recognition of a baptism. We've ha- we had one of those within the last year or two, um, because there was trouble in the hospital, and dad baptized the baby. baby ended up surviving, God be praised. But then we don't rebaptize. We have um, a recognition, a public recognition that baptism has taken place. So, if time permits, the following may precede the baptism. You you might mention if it's a child, uh, Mark ten. That's Jesus. It's a s- section from "Let the little children come to me." Um, there's a prayer offered here. Uh, And then there's the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed. Take water and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's the little rite given. But if it's truly an emergency situation, um, like it's it's life or death and it's going to happen right now and it needs to happen, don't let your mind be cluttered. Water, and I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's a valid baptism. And that's great comfort to the parent. It's great benefit and blessing given to the individual. And that can all be recorded by the church and sort of ratified, so to speak, down the road. Of course, in God's view, it's already uh, a done deal. So that's what I would do. Um, If you've got enough time to go home and get your hymnal and all of that other stuff in order to do the full rite, why don't you give me a call? <laughs> I'll be happy to go down to the hospital and do it. Um, so, yeah, just <clears throat> some things to consider there. But this is then, um, and I know in our, in our old catechisms, I don't know about the new one, um, but in our old catechisms, they had this right too. It's just good to be aware of. I, I, I never used it as a, as a lay person. Um, I never had opportunity to, but you may. And, um, and that's within your purview as a, as a Christian. Yeah. Please. And yet, as hard as we try, there's always those situations. One that I never can forget was as a young nurse working in the operating room. And the doctor um, delivered a viable fetus. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, fully formed, put it in the basin, said, put it on the back table. And I said, but still breathing. And he said, well, it won't be for long. Oh, how horrible. And how horrible. I'm just like, you know, not prepared for anything. And yeah. just trust God that he's in charge. Yeah, it's... Um Whatever Americans like to imagine about the uh, gas chambers of Germany, we're in an, an equal or worse perspective. I almost can't even hear it anymore when people want to bring up the Holocaust as an evil thing. It's like, how about if you bring up the evil that's happening in our own midst, which is every bit or more horrific? Um, yeah, I can just, just about hardly stomach that because it's a canard and it's an excuse that Americans use. Oh, that demon Hitler. Oh, that terrible holocaust and and we do all that as diversion meanwhile we've got something every bit or more demonic and horrific and by the way if in fact i don't believe this i don't think you should believe it either if you've done like five minutes worth of research if you believe six million jews died uh in the uh, camps in germany um i think the specific claim is that they were um uh gassed and their bodies incinerated, which is physically impossible that that occurred. But if you believe that six million Jews, uh, within the last five years, the data of abortions, anyone want to take a guess? Tenfold. 60 million. So then you can see what all this rhetoric does. It just diverts our attention from the Holocaust and the absolute uh, Molech worship and demonism that is going on right in our backyards. So I hope you'll join me in not being able to stomach that diversion anymore. And uh, let's, let's talk about the Holocaust, Holocaust that's taking place here in, uh, in America. We, um, you know, we, you can see too in so many of the policies of the United States a specific hatred of children. A specific hatred of children in the womb, a specific hatred of children as soon as they come out of the womb. I mean, individually, I know we've got this thing where we all worship our kids, too, and that's a problem. That just shows how unstable our foundation is where we're, you know, can't decide whether to kill them or worship them corporately. But then, and neither is appropriate, but then when you, when you just look at the policies of education and then the policies uh, that include um, promiscuity being taught in public school and the whole idea of uh, the various technologies of birth control, many of which are in fact uh, uh, abortifacient themselves, the whole system is designed to lead couples into uh, premarital intercourse and, uh, and babies who then are ripe for abortion. And I'm not faulting any single human being as if they were the mastermind of all of this. They're not. The demons are. The Old Testament God of Molech is. And that is the super intelligence that's running our policies and our governmental policies and our societies and, our so, and our, all the social programs and everything else that's creating a place that's ripe for uh, sacrifice. Um, there's a really chilling scene from a movie. I don't ever recommend movies because caveat emptor there. And there's all, there's all kinds of nonsense. But 
um, and I can't remember off the top of my head. It's uh, one of you will remember it. Um, it's this prisoner, and the question is, is he demon possessed or not? Um, do you remember this movie? But anyway, it's beside the point. Maybe better that we don't. Probably the Holy Spirit blocking us so you don't go watch it. But there's this point at which um, the demon has predicted that and told that an abortion is taking place of the person he's talking to um, at that very moment. And it just, I mean, it sends like chills up your spine because as it's occurring, the demon says, and all hell rejoices. It's this cathartic celebratory moment that a human being made in God's image, and by the way, to which the demons were made to tremble because the promise is that the seed of the woman, the baby born, would crush their head. They were made to tremble at infants. And uh, there's this cathartic celebratory um, rejoicing any time the image of God is destroyed in a human being, particularly an infant human being. And I understand that's Hollywood. I understand that's fiction. But on the other hand, it can't be far from the truth. In the same way the church rejoices and exalts and is jubilant at the baptism of a child, and there's just nothing better, hell rejoices in the same way at the uh, abortion of a child. Okay, well, enough on that. That's all terrible and depressing. And, um, you know, of those who repent, may God have mercy, and indeed he does. And those who come to their senses, I mean, this is why we say that Christ um, died on the cross for real sins. It's a real death, it's real blood for real sins, and it's a real cleansing that takes place. And God in his mercy, I mean, think about the, the profundity, think about the breadth and depth of his love that he says, even that kind of thing, I'll forgive. And he, not only does he say, I'll forgive it, as if it's begrudging, but he announces the forgiveness of all sins those sins included. So for all who repent and desire his forgiveness, there is uh, boundless forgiveness. Um, There's the temporal consequence that's occurred, but the eternal consequences can be removed. And that's a a huge and and wonderful gift and blessing he gives, unspeakable. So um, keep that in mind. For those who don't repent and those who don't want God's mercy, um, they'll get exactly what what they're looking for complete absence of mercy, and rightfully so. Okay, so baptism, um, (laughs) in that sense, baptism is completely the opposite of abortion, and abortion is a kind of, I've talked about this on Sunday, that abortion is the anti-sacrament, is the devil's Um, anti-sacrament. We've meditated that in line with um, baptism here, Um, the difference between God who gives a new birth and um, Satan who, and a new life, and Satan who tries to destroy life, even that fleshly life. Okay, so baptism then uh, is not salvific apart from Christ, but precisely because it comes from Christ, is done in and through Christ, unites us with Christ, etc. Christ is thorough going all the way through baptism. All right, 234, how long does that salutary effect of baptism and fruit of comfort last? Through a man's whole life on this earth. In fact, unto life eternal. Mark 16, 16. Likewise, we are born again in baptism that we might be made heirs of eternal life according to hope. 
Titus 3 and Ephesians 5. This is indeed begun in this life, but finally completed in the life to come. And it is indeed a very sweet comfort that through all of this life, baptism becomes for us the figure of a very firm pact and public testimony that we have been made partakers of the merit of Christ in such a way that we can at all times seek and draw continual comfort from it. As Paul comforts the Galatians on the basis of baptism once received when they repented after falling. Galatians 3.27. Okay, so uh, one of the great Roman Catholic errors, and it's an error that goes early into the Western church, unfortunately, is that baptism forgives all sins present and past tense, but after baptism, you're on your own. Horrific false teaching. Baptism biblically given is analogous to marriage in this sense, that if you are married... It is true you were married on your wedding day, but the reality is that you are married and it's a present tense. Something you entered into, past tense, but now you are in present tense, durative tense. That um, is true also for baptism. Not only is it true you were baptized, but you are baptized. That's a lifelong promise and blessing and work of God. Um, As the scriptures themselves indicate, it's a new birth, so... You were birthed, but now you are alive, and that's, those two realities can't be disconnected. Okay, so baptism is a lifelong promise, and baptism, you know, the pastors get to have fun with all this, because there's always all these different frames and camera angles on the same event that you can take and just examine and, and rejoice in, in this wonderful gift of baptism. Um, But let me just speak as accurately as I possibly can. Baptism isn't, the action of baptism isn't in fact completed until the new heavens and the new earth. Because baptism has a now reality, but a not yet reality. And it's only when we're resurrected and our bodies glorified that we'll say baptism has no more to give. All the not yet is in fact a now, and all has been completed, and all that God intends through baptism is now finished. Um, We can't say that until we're raised in our bodies. Okay, so the now reality is, you know, that famous saying of the monk, um, if through baptism you've died, then you won't die when you die. (laughs) That sentiment. And that's just playing on a, on a different frame, that if, if you've died in baptism, it's what it means to be buried with Christ, it's what it means to be drowned in those waters, then when you die, you won't die, right? Because you've already died. That's just taking a different frame, a different camera angle on it. It's wonderful and glorious. And other camera angles could be taken as well. Okay, any thoughts there on how long does the salutary effect of baptism and fruit of comfort last? Answer, your whole life. Okay? Then on to question 235. But what if one who is baptized rejects repentance and loses faith? The salutary fruits of baptism, of which we have spoken, are apprehended, retained, and preserved by faith. Mark 16, 16. So again, look at what the Bible does. Look what Jesus does. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Does he pit 
belief and baptism against each other. No, they're connected. And so for salvation, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Baptism and faith are both essential parts of that, according to God's plan. I mean, obviously, he can, he can do what he wants, but that's the main course. The salutary fruits of baptism, of which we have spoken, are apprehended, retained, and preserved by faith. Therefore, when there is no repentance and no good, but only evil fruit follows, there certainly is no true and saving faith, as we pointed out above. Likewise, he that either does not seek or does not retain the grace of God in Christ, but spurns and rejects it, he does not have true faith. And those such have been baptized, yet they are under this sentence of divine judgment. He that does not believe shall be condemned. That's the second half of Mark 16, 16. So here, in two lines, Jesus has taught an entire theology of baptism that we could spend pages and pages writing about. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's the course of salvation. But what is the course of damnation? He leaves baptism entirely out of the question. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. So we've got two different things. What, are the, what is the path of salvation? Faith and baptism. What is the path of damnation? Unbelief. So whether one is baptized or unbaptized, unbelief is what damns. You see the distinction that Jesus teaches then that Chemnitz reflects on here. Okay, so um, you can very profitably use the prodigal son um, to answer just about any other questions you've had. So the, make, the, make the sonship, because the prodigal son is a son of his father. You've become a son of the father through baptism. Can you leave the household of faith? Can you spurn your father? Can you squander the inheritance? Can you end up in the hell of pig slop? Sure you can. If you die in that state, do you die in a state not reconciled from the Father, not in the Father's house? Indeed. Indeed. But if you come to your senses and return in faith to the Father, and return in repentance and faith to the Father's house, that He is good and He will receive you back in, you're received back in as a son because you are a son. So then the sonship itself isn't ever invalidated. The sonship itself doesn't change. Whether you have the benefit of that sonship or not is what changes. And that's a matter of unbelief or belief. So when we come to our own senses, we return to the Father. I have a different take probably than most Lutherans on the idea that he wants to um, come back as a servant in his father's house. I don't see this as some sort of nascent self-righteousness. If somebody preaches it, I'm not going to throw tomatoes at them or, you know, accuse them of heresy. It's a fine. I don't don't find it obnoxious. (laughs) But how should he have come back? I think he comes back not in a spirit of presumptuousness of like, hey, I'm back, I'm your son, but hey, can I crawl in at the lowest possible level? I think it's a statement of his inner repentance that he returns back and says, because what does he say? I'm unworthy to be your son. Make me your worker. I think this is thorough. I think it's 
subtle minor abuse to make this a works righteousness thing. I think this is um, what penitence looks like. Better to be a, a doorman at the, the tent of God, right, than to better to be a servant than to dwell in the palaces of the wicked. So he's coming back and um, in a thoroughgoing, repentant way, and his father receives him back as a son. That's exactly how baptism works. Um, we're sons through baptism, and you can spurn all the benefits of that sonship, but if you return in repentance, it's not like you need to be baptized again. It's not like you need to be born again. You already are a son, and he receives you as such and clothes you with the robe of righteousness and the ring and the sandals and the feast and all the rest. Yeah. Okay, yes, please. I have a question regarding uh, an adult baptism when there's not proper catechesis. Uh, oh, yeah. For example, uh, an adult attends a revival you know, up at the Anaheim Stadium or Billy Graham, and then he, in an emotional moment, gets baptized by a pastor who may not fulfill the catechesis role. Can yeah. you comment on that? And is, that, is that an effective baptism? Yeah, it is still an effective or valid baptism because wherever you have the Word of God and uh, water, so you were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and there was water there. That's a valid baptism. And God be praised for that, no matter what the other nonsense is circling around it. Okay, now just because that's the case, though, we don't want to infer from that all kinds of other false inferences or false things about baptism or the nature of baptism. So we go always back to the words of institution, as Chemnitz calls them, Matthew 28. Uh, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. The goal, the telos, is never baptism for baptism's sake, nor is the goal teaching for teaching's sake. The goal is discipleship. How do you make a disciple? Baptizing and teaching. So where a disciple isn't going to be made, it's not a good idea to baptize. In fact, it's, I mean, strictly speaking, it's an abuse. Because the end goal isn't baptism, the end goal is discipleship. So if someone came to me and said, uh, you know, Pastor, I'd love to be baptized. And I said, why? And they said, well, I'm not a Christian. I've never been a Christian. But I figure, you know, just in case, Scripture promises that baptism now saves you. I don't believe that. But if I died and it turns out that the Christian God is the true God, I had better be baptized. So I'm going to, you know, and, and I mean, just to make it absurd, I'm going to go down to the, to the mosque and see what they have for me, too. Just want to get all my bases checked, all my insurance policies in place. Uh, should a pastor baptize such a person? No. Now, it's an, absur- it's an absurd example. But if there is a point at which a pastor would not baptize someone, and you fetch out why that is, then you've opened your mind to the category in which a pastor should be a good steward of this gift of God, and that the end goal isn't baptism per se, but discipleship. Okay. That's, the, that's the, maybe an entry point, a good entry point into why a pastor wouldn't necessarily baptize anyone and everyone. Okay, so um, baptism works where it's done in accordance with the institution of Christ. It's done for the purposes of, uh, of baptism, of initiation into discipleship and the lifelong uh, process of discipleship, lifelong learning and teaching. Um, that's it's, it's to be done according to the institution. It needs the words, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It needs the element of water. And when those things are there, it's a valid baptism. And it's a baptism that is 
or at least has been, universally received within the church. So that baptism is, is really, in fact, it sets the parameters of what Christianity is. Because uh, if you go as a Lutheran to the Roman Catholic Church, I don't know why you would, but if you did, they would say your baptism is valid. And vice versa. And same with, the, uh, with most, most of the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox um, communions and uh, other conservative communions, your baptism is received. Now, where the church universally says no is really the borderland of what's Christian and not. So is a uh, Mormon baptism a valid baptism? No, the entire church says no. There's the borderlands of what's Christendom and not Christendom. Okay, gives you an example. You can then also see how nasty and pernicious it is. What a grievous and profound sin against the church it is when, when cults and sects of evangelicalism today say you have to be baptized again. We don't accept your baptism that the Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans, Anglican, everybody accepts, but we don't accept it. What a condemnation. And what a sectarian practice then to say, if you don't have our specific baptism. Well, I've already been baptized 16 times before. Well, you've got to have our specific baptism. That's cult-like behavior. And so, caveat emptor there. Um, If that's happened to you, because things happen to us over the course of our lives, your first baptism was your real baptism, and the rest was error. (laughs) Confess it, repent of it, know that you're forgiven of it, and move on. Don't don't stew, uh, just move on. Um, press forward, as St. Paul would say. Okay, any, uh, any thoughts? Are we okay to go one more? Okay, there's a, there's a couple hands, so let's, let's pause and take these in. That's important. How should we think about, I mean, obviously God is God, and he's the ultimate judge, and justly so. It's easy to get off track with baptism saves you, and so because we have been catechized, and have a level of understanding, it's easy to think others will not be saved and so forth. God decides ultimately who's saved and who's not. Yeah. So someone even sitting in our church could not be saved based on what's in their heart. Yep. So I don't want to paint it with too broad a brush, but with everything we're learning, we're doing the right thing by splitting hairs and really understanding for ourselves. But at the same time, we need to stay humble and know that God is God and His Holy Spirit. Mm. And absolutely, absolutely. And all of our baptismal practice is really predicated upon the Word of God. It's a kind of red herring, and sometimes false teachers or Christians who want to make a bad argument will, will try to lead you down all these paths of like, well, first you have to detect if the person really, truly has faith and um, try to tie this into like the secret knowledge of God's salvation or election. And all of these are false paths and red herrings and take us far afield. As, as Christians in general, as, as pastor and congregation in specific, our entire baptismal practice is determined by nothing but the ostensible word of God. So I baptize because God tells me to baptize. If discipleship isn't in view, I'm not going to baptize. If baptism and teaching are going to coalesce and make a form a disciple, I will baptize. I don't peer into the hearts of infants to see if they have faith or not. I don't peer into the heart of anyone to see if they have faith or not. Because God doesn't tell me to do that in his word. What God does tell me to do is baptize all nations. 
And he doesn't say all nations except for women. He doesn't say all nations except for people uh, above the age of 70. He doesn't say all nations, well, of course, babies are excluded. Oh, he doesn't say all nations except for redheaded people or people with beards. All nations means all nations. All ages. All, all nations literally means all races. Um, all, all different hair colors, two different genders, all of the above. Or two different sexes, rather. All of the above um, are to be baptized um, and taught as part and parcel of what makes a disciple of Jesus Christ. So from that standpoint, then it's wonderful. Because I, I don't have to worry about these questions that the Bible doesn't give me to worry about. We can be wonderfully free in that and bestow this great gift of God upon fellow, uh, fellow sinners, bring them into the family of God. Okay, so next week then we'll pick up, it looks like, on question... Oh, I'm sorry, you had a, you had a comment. I just saw the mic. I'm so sorry, please. We, we've got another uh, 30 seconds. <laughs> you answered one of my questions uh, in answering before, but... Um, uh, I, I, we understand that we don't have to understand how we're physically born, and we can still be born. <laughs> right. Yeah, so, right. So we don't have to understand it at that point. You mm-hmm. know, we can look mm-hmm. back and understand it. Well, yeah, I guess this is what happened. Okay. I, I have to say, this just came to me today at the very beginning of your lecture. No doubt other people have thought this, but Christ completely identifies his ministry and what he's there for by being baptized. At the very beginning of it, it's like a handoff. John the Baptist, he's completely identifying with baptism at the beginning of his ministry, and at the very end, he gives us communion as he leaves. It's like bookends. It's a wonderful picture. Yeah. from lecture today. And then um, I wanted to say, Elizabeth gets these darling, darling, once you start down the road, you know, your phone will keep showing you the same kind of related issues of little babies. And one she had, you fall in love with these little babies, and one is just born. You can see that it's just been born, and it's on the mother's chest, and the mother gives it a a kiss, and it smiles. He's so happy. And you get to see it happen over and over again to combat this horror in our society. Mm. I just thought, put pictures of babies up ah. there and we'll fall in love with them. <laughs> right. We want them. It makes right. life wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, there, and I'm so glad you spoke. There's, I, I like all three of your points. And maybe we'll get to talk at some point in the future about Christ's baptism and our joining him in those waters. Um, the, the point that I think you drew out that's especially important given the, the nature of a couple of the questions um, a car works whether you know how it works or not, right? And that's a beautiful illustration for, so if you're baptized at the Harvest Crusade or baptized when you're a baby or whatever else, you don't know how baptism works. You don't know what the Bible even teaches about it, but I don't know how my truck runs either, and it just does. It still works. And by the way, that's also true on the other end, where if the the pastor doesn't know what he's doing, uh, who baptizes you, or the person doesn't know what they're doing who baptizes you, and they have no clue what baptism is, it doesn't change the fact that baptism still works. The car still works, even if the mechanic, as it were, has no idea how. He should, but he doesn't. So that's a beautiful illustration for the fact that baptism is baptism. A car is a car. Whether you know or understand it or not, it's a gift given to you, and it's, uh, it's good and usable and free. All right, on that note, we'll end. The Lord be with you. <laughs>